welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 47, recorded on November 13th, 2019. The Cloud Pod gets a savings plan. Hey, Jonathan, how's it going today? Really good. It's been a really good week. We are recording early, so we are with our trusty, trusty coffees. Uh, but we are short our beloved Peter. So we have a fantastic substitute named Matt Cohn. Matt, would you like to say hello and introduce yourself? Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Matthew Cohn. Uh, I'm with Foghorn Consulting. I'm the director of the East Coast. Um, I primarily am a subject matter expert on Amazon and AWS. Um, I've done work even helping Amazon um, update some of their certification tests to make them more relevant recently. How is that? How is updating the certification test? Is it is it is it is baroque of a process as it feels when you're taking the test? So I can tell you that they're trying to make it be more relevant, so and make it less wordy and make things more concise. So part of the things that we're looking at when we write and review the questions um, is actually consolidating the questions down into just the meaningful parts. But that also means that every word in there becomes more important. So there's some pros and cons of that, but it also helps when people, um, when it's their second language. The other thing they're trying to do is make it more focused um, on the what a minimum qualified candidate would actually know and really consolidate it down to a little bit more scenario for the pro level exams and for the associate level exams, a little bit more, you know, just what is the technology and how to use it. So if you think one service versus multiple services for a pro level exam. Yeah, that was one of my complaints with the some of the pro certs in the past is you know you get into the scenario and it's on, you know, Java something and you're like, well, I don't my I don't support a Java app day to day, I support a, a .NET app or a Python app or something else. And it was always like, Well, I think I know how this works, but you know, you're kind of in this this gray area where you're like, Well, I have to figure out how the scenario of performance latency can be optimized in a technology I don't actually really understand that doesn't have anything to do with AWS. Yeah, are they going to solve the problem of um, of like the the tests not not being up to date enough for the services? Yeah, so they actually go through um, refreshing them, and that was one of the big pushes um, I just did with them was actually getting the DevOps Pro questions refreshed, and then even to the point when we had questions that they couldn't release yet because. Um, it wasn't six months since the service has been released. So really getting the questions up to date and consistently rotating them through with newer questions is one of their goals right now. And I know that they've expanded their team and their certification team, at least the people I've worked with, are all great and really trying to make this actually be more relevant than three years ago when I got my original DevOps Pro certification when it was like, if you know Optworks, Beanstalk, or can memorize some stuff about Beanstalk in my case, and auto-scaling group, you could get a decent way through passing the test. At least now they're trying to pull in config and all the other re- and all the other tools that people actually use in more day-to-day, um, or more people use day-to-day. Because I, I do know when I took my DevOps Pro, that was my big complaint too. Was I was like, there's a lot of Beanstalk questions. And while I'm familiar with Beanstalk, I don't use it often because I don't, it's not really a, a deployment model that I think makes sense for DevOps. It makes sense for developers um, who are new to the cloud, but I don't think it's a good DevOps one. So it's always a little bit funny to me that it was in the DevOps cert. So glad to hear they're maybe uh, making it a little bit more broader. Yeah, it's getting a lot more interesting um, to sit down with everyone and do it. We've definitely, there's still a couple of Beanstalk questions floating in there, but it's more about just how to use Beanstalk and things along those lines than diving into every other question is about being stuck. 
Yeah, I, m- I remember when the one that gets into is it, like, how do you do a deploy with Beanstalk? And it's like, you know, the EB, EB push command or something like that. And it was, you know, but then they give you the three of the same EB push answer with a different slash command. And you're like, well, all of them can be accurate. I don't know. I don't use the service day to day. So it was always fun. Uh, but enough of lamenting about the DevOps Pro Cert, which I have to redo next year because mine's expiring. Yeah, so do I. I'm not looking forward to it. No oh, good. Well, I can I can maybe study with you, and that'll, yeah. that'll help me out. There we go. All right, cool. Well, let's uh, let's move on to the show. Uh, so you probably don't know much about this one, Matt, because you weren't here last week, and uh, the show just dropped for this week. But the uh, there was a big Halloween downtime for Google. Uh, they were down from Halloween night until pretty much the second of November, um, where they had some issues. Uh, the RCA has been published, and so they say in the RCA that a performance regression in their networking control software caused the service to become accum- begin accumulating a backlog of requests. Uh, the backlog eventually became insignificant enough that the request timed out, leaving some projects stuck in a state where further admin ops cannot be applied, and it required manual intervention uh, to clear the stuck projects and jobs. And so, if you you know as you go through the article a bit more in depth, they start talking about a whole bunch of things around rate limiting and the way their system works uh, in this control plane software. But overall, a little bit interesting issue and concern. It reminds me a lot of some of the former Amazon outages. When I read through the article, they really start to dive down into different things, and which goes into the differentiation between Google and Amazon, where at least Amazon, since they regionalize everything, it would this would be isolated to a region. But this is one of the um, primitives that Amazon versus Google differentiate on, where Google has a global network where Amazon has regional networks. You have to be careful and make that decision going into it where you do get some benefits of the global, but then not the local. Understanding what your cloud's primitives are and how they think about availability and fault tolerance and resiliency is super critical. Uh, to understanding how you need to design your services. And this is one of the big things that I, I stress anytime I talk to customers about Google or uh, Azure especially. Like, okay, you have to understand that they don't have some of the same primitives that Amazon does, and you have to think that through. Do you think it's a, a fair RCA? Do you think they, they really got to the root cause? Or do you think there's a, something deeper there? Like, well, how, how did this bad bit of code get into production with a, in the first place? Yeah, I, they didn't really talk about the failures in their dev process that led to it. Um, I mean, I think it's definitely the technical, you know, reason why things backed up and things didn't work. But um, how that got to production, how they're preventing that from getting to production, I think that was a little light in the RCA. Yeah, they had a whole bunch of stuff at the bottom of it, really talking more about how how they're going to fix it going forward. But I thought, like you guys just said, that it's missing the what happened that caused it. They talk about adding in continuous load testing, rate limiting traffic sharding the global network further, which are all things that they should be doing anyways, and then automating the manual steps they had to do, which is good. But yeah, I, I wish there was a little bit more about, you know, we rolled in this code that caused this function to slow down by 45%, you know, or something like that. That would have been a helpful little bit of additional t- detail that they didn't include. And maybe they did for their internal customers. Uh, I don't have a, a support account with Google to be able to ask further questions, so I'm I'm beholden to the public uh, statements. Yeah, I feel, feel bad that they had to resolve every single case manually. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's not a good scenario whatsoever. Yep. Uh, it does answer some of the questions around why there was really no updates um, from Halloween night into the next morning, which I think I said last time was maybe because they were all out trick-or-treating. Uh, but it sounded it sounds like actually the reality is that uh, they were hoping the automation would recover on its own, and, it, and at some point they got to the point where they realized they had to manually address it, and that's when they really started updating the timeline. 
All right, moving on to uh, new news. Uh, Capital One has replaced their security chief uh, after their big data breach four months ago by uh, Paige Thomas. Uh, the security chief will be moving into a new role uh, as the SVP and special advisor dedicated to cybersecurity. Uh, and Mike Eason, who is the former CIO of commercial banking, has replaced Johnson as CISO uh, temporarily while they search for a new permanent replacement. Uh, so I think that's a nice way of saying Michael Johnson's on his way out. <laughs> we're, we're putting him into an advisor role to do transition, uh, but he's not in charge until we hire the new CISO. So I'm sure they are actively looking for a, a world-class CISO uh, to help solve their problems at Capital One. And so good luck to them. Uh, I know, I, I mean, it's a tough situation, especially anytime you're in a scaled infrastructure of that size, uh, that, you know, someone getting blamed like this is kind of, sort of unfortunate because it's a, it's a breakdown of multiple, multiple processes. Mm. I mean, isn't that really the job of the CISO to be, to be the fall person when, when things go wrong? <laughs> I'm sure it is. Uh, you know, having never been a CISO, it's, it's still kind of anti- to what we talk about in the culture of you know being blameless and, and understanding how your processes are failing and understanding all those things, but yeah, you had to have a scapegoat, I guess, at some point. There was just so many failures that were that were linked up to cause it that it always feels weird to me when they're like, "Well, this person is at fault," when really, you know, it was ten or twenty other people that all caused the you know one one step from each person caused the failure. Uh, Amazon is uh, building a new robotics hub in Boston. This is our second hub. Uh, this will be a new 40 million office uh, that cements the region as a tech giant's epicenter for robotics innovation. Uh, the new site will be 350,000 square feet in Westboro, Massachusetts. And the site will open in 2021 for about 200 people and complement their existing office in North Reading, Massachusetts. Uh, there's a statement here from Ty Brady, Amazon Robotics Chief Technologist. We're excited to grow our team in Massachusetts and take advantage of the talent and regional connectivity that Metro West offers. This will be a world-class facility where our teams can design, build, program, and ship our robots all under the same roof. This expansion will allow us to continue to innovate quickly and improve delivery speed for customers around the world. So that that reads to me as uh, this is going to be the new place where they're testing drones. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> yeah, I would think so. Because they don't need, I mean, they have those robots that move uh, shelving around in their warehouses and, you know, bring the pole, you know, if this shelf has this product that's being pulled for a shipment, it you know, grabs that thing and takes it to the person who packages it for them. Um, I don't, I mean, that technology is relatively straightforward. I assume this is the next level. The 350,000 square feet is a big, big office or a big building to uh, put some drones into and start testing different scenarios so uh, pretty exciting to see what they do with this yeah and i feel like they're a little bit behind because um is ups and walgreens have, have started doing uh tests of drone deliveries of packages and things now so uh, amazon really hasn't done other, other than sort of like the, the uh the press releases and the and the examples of drones dropping amazon packages on people's driveway i don't think they're actually productionized that yet i don't think they have either but this is actually out in your neck of the woods uh matt what do you think about this coming into your backyard yeah, I mean, Amazon already has a large, uh, well, I guess AWS technically has a large office in Seaport District of Boston, but those two locations, North Reading and Westboro, are pretty far apart. So just thinking about it, like, logistically, like, those are 45 minutes to an hour on a good day in traffic between each other. So saying that they're going to, like, complement each other and work together, like, is going to be difficult logistically, unless if they're going to try to eventually consolidate or... They're going to really have them each focus on their own aspect of the technology that they're trying to improve. Maybe they'll make self-flying things that can transport people between the offices. That'd be cool. <laughs> or they'll run their own, you know, own system that tra that helps people travel between the two 
Everyone gets their own little personal helicopter. Yeah, that's right. Just hold them tight. It's only like 45 miles. Not a big deal. Do you think um, if Amazon actually built their second headquarters in New York where they wanted to, would they have, would they have done this? Is this like a reaction to um, to not building their second HQ like they wanted? Reality is, is that the whole Headquarter 2 thing was kind of a boondoggle anyways. They, they really have several offices already around the country that are different focuses and different needs. And so I think, you know, the idea of Headquarters 2 was to, you know, potentially build a much larger campus, but they still already have campuses in those locations. So it's it was a bit of a weird thing anyways. You know, I, I, I suppose they actually have to build the the, um, the offices where, where the talent is, and there's plenty of talent in Boston. Boston has tons of universities and whatnot are all around here, so getting people that with high education, really, or that are very specific in technology and programming and all these things is not difficult for them to do. I think that Boston probably lost out on the uh, what is it, Amazon 2 headquarters probably due to, like, just cost. You mean it's not that much cheaper than the Bay Area living here, so. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, moving on, uh, IBM, if you guys remember from a few months back, uh, announced that they were going to be the number one player in the next generation of cloud. And, you know, what they saw is what Azure and Google and Amazon was doing was just, you know, that was the beginning of cloud, but they were going to own the next phase. And so their first big announcement in this space is that they have partnered with Bank of America to build the first differentiated financial services cloud. Uh, this is, l- partnership is leveraging the financial giant's deep industry knowledge and hosting highly regulated workloads uh, to develop the process framework of a new financial services cloud. They do say it will be the first, first financial services ready public cloud, which I take issue with uh, for a lot of reasons we'll talk about here in a minute. Uh, and they have a desire to build a framework that makes it easier for financial services companies to onboard to public cloud by automatically enforcing the right controls and best practices for compliance, security, risk management, and data protection. Uh, IBM is also hoping to attract SaaS vendors who would like to sell to fintech compliant companies. Uh, and help them uh, ease the concerns of companies like Bank of America or others that use this cloud by saying, oh, you're on the IBM Financial Services Cloud. Uh, IBM is currently the number seven cloud provider, uh, and so they have a long way to go to uh, get to that number one spot. If I was a a financial organization, I I would definitely trust uh, the more established providers like Amazon and Google over a a startup. Although I suppose being sort of aligned with Bank of America, you you kind of trust that they they know what to build in the first place, but I don't know, it's, it's a bit weird. I worry that you end up building a solution that meets Bank of America's concerns, which may not be the general industry concerns. And so where does that line get drawn, right? Like, is this purely a Bank of America interpretation of how they want to do it? Or is this how the fintech services in the world want to do it? And are you are you kind of going too far towards one direction or one opinion that other companies would find um, overly restrictive. And so that's the interesting part of it, especially when you're talking about bringing SaaS companies into this as well. 
who are not necessarily under the same regulations that a company like Bank of America is, um, I could see there being a conflict or or issues with a feeling that this is too restrictive almost. It's almost like the early days of Google App Engine, uh, where you know they had all these very draconian rules that all make sense for the Google website, uh, but when you apply them to different business use cases, they end up becoming very limiting very quickly. It's really good that you have these two large companies, but to me, like going with IBM, who is a number seven cloud provider, you know, it's kind of like in the olden days of going to get Cisco hardware. Nobody gets fired for buying Cisco hardware and having a failure. People still trust the IBM name out there and it still does hold water. So maybe this solution was kind of brought about by, you know, that same old philosophy of, oh, let's go with the IBM cloud because it. It's, you know, it's a, it's a name that people trust and know, and we're not going to get fired for it, but not really looking at all the underlying technologies that run it and how it's going. Because to me, Bank of America going and going with a number seven cloud provider with the scale and everything that Bank of America has, even if they did get IBM to really focus on all the controls and compliance and everything else that a fintech company needs, really means that they're limiting themselves on everything else that they can do. And they're not getting the advantage of scale that... Amazon or Google or Microsoft all would provide them. I think the days of IBM is a safe bet that you won't get fired for have long ended now. I, I mean, even 10 years ago when I was last buying IBM hardware, uh, when I would go to industry events that IBM was sponsoring and you know look around the, the room at the other participants in the thing, they were all nearing retirement age. <laughs> they were all very stuffy companies uh, that were not very modern thinkers. And so um, I'm hoping that that IBM or Oracle, no one gets fired for for buying those type of things, is is sort of ending. Um, but you never know; it it could be more dominant than I realize in some enterprises. That this is a really great play. Um, I think it makes sense to try to partner with a company like IBM from Bank of America's perspective. I imagine if they tried to do the same thing with Azure or AWS or Google, um, they would have difficulty getting their their opinions to become priority for them because they're looking at a much larger customer base and a much larger concern of needs and compliance frameworks than this IBM thing, which is like, they're probably thinking, well, if we can get this to be right for financial services, we can use this as a jumping off point into healthcare and into other things where they could do the same thing with a big marquee customer. Um, So I see why IBM did it. Um, I'm a little less sure that Bank of America made the right call here, but they also were recently... Uh, touting the fact that they built their own cloud internally at Bank of America and how it saved them, you know, three, $3 billion globally by building their own cloud and not using AWS or Red or uh, Azure. So it's a, overall just a really interesting perspective in general. I wonder if the decision has to do with some of the IBM, some of the differentiating factor that IBM does have over other providers. I mean, they are doing a lot of research in constant computing. They've always been... Um, kind of like leaders in um, encryption technology and and, uh, that kind of stuff. So maybe there's a good reason why Bank of America partnered with them. Yet to be revealed. (laughs) Yeah, we will see. We'll keep keep an eye on it for sure. I'm also wondering like how large of a segment of their business is going into the IBM cloud. Because if you think about even like past reinvents where I don't remember the company specifically, but I feel like, you know, one year you'll see company X say is on stage with, AWS at their keynote during reInvent, and then the next year they're on stage, or two years later they're on stage with Google or Microsoft saying, well, this is the cloud we're going with. So I really also wonder like how much of the business is actually going to the IBM cloud versus other clouds. That's a good point. I, I often wonder that same thing when when we have like presentations from salespeople and they, they bring out the, um, you know, the, the, the corporate logos on their reference slide, and I think, well, 
how many how much business which part of that little uh, that that company is actually using your tool the scope is very important so yeah that's a very good point all right moving on to uh, aws news jeff barr has celebrating 15 years of blogging uh that milestone was achieved on november 11th uh, which is the 15th anniversary of his first blog post for aws uh, the blog post goes on to tell about his uh, career from the early days at microsoft his joining amazon uh being involved in the early narrative reviews for aws uh in andy's uh, living room and then also the first blog post and how they wrote it on typepad at the time using a free coupon uh, for a thousand days free and then uh, several links to some of the early blog posts including sqs s3 ec2 ebs uh, which is a little bit of nostalgia for me reading through some of those because uh, i remember when they first came out many many years ago and uh, jeff is now has a as of this uh, 15th year post had 3100 posts under his belt and uh, many more to come as well as i've seen already like remember, like five posts this week so he's at 3105 i think <laughs> for this week alone uh, so he's uh still actively blogging like crazy and uh, he has been a great uh, resource for all of us here in the cloud community for a very long time so congratulations jeff uh, and the team and his blogging team now uh, which is much bigger than just jeff as he goes into detail in the blog post as well He's a great person. I met him a couple times at reInvent and had some great conversation with him. And he's always very insightful. I mean, granted, he can't share everything that I'm sure he knows of what's happening internal to Amazon, but even just he's still up on his tech. He's still very, you know, he's extremely smart. And just having a conversation with somebody like that is always pleasurable. Yeah, we had lunch with him um, last year, didn't we, at reInvent, after we won the hackathon. Yep. yep. And I think that they're supposed to be doing a blog post about that in the next couple of weeks for us. Excellent. As they actually release our solution. So should be some fun, Jonathan. That's, uh, that's scary. <laughs> we, should, uh, we should get some of you guys on to uh, one of our, our mini shows to talk about uh, how to attack a hackathon. That's a good idea. All right, moving on to uh, the big news of the week. So uh, as you guys know, Amazon has a concept called RIs, uh, which released over a decade ago to uh, Vector CFO, uh, drive you crazy in trying to figure out how to buy them and allow you to easily save or waste millions of dollars. Uh, and since Amazon has released them, customers have saved over a billion dollars using RIs, or at least they think they have. Uh, and over the years, they have added features like regional benefits, convertible RIs, and instance flexibility, uh, resulting in discounts up to 72% on some workloads, uh, particularly if they're Linux, not Windows. Uh, but it does require a large amount of Excel work, uh, or machine learning work, if you will, and has many other drawbacks. Uh, and it's nearly not saving, you know, staying up to date with what things like Google's doing and Azure's doing. And to solve these shortcomings, AWS is launching the new savings plan feature. Uh, this is a new flexible discount model that provides you with the same discounts as RIs in exchange for a commitment to use a specific amount of compute power over a one-year or three-year period. Uh, when you commit to a specific amount of compute usage per hour, all usage up to that amount will be covered by the savings plan, and anything past it will be billed at the on-demand rate. So uh, that's pretty interesting. What do you guys think about that? It doesn't reserve the capacity for you, though, right? So It does not reserve the capacity, so it is not a BCP DR solution for you. Yeah. So, so most of the RIs don't actually reserve the capacity. So if you look at any of the flexible ones or the convertible ones, they're not actually reserved. The only way to get true reserved, I think, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong on this, is if they, if you actually buy it for the specific AZ, you buy the original RS that were released nine, 10 years ago at this point. Well, they also have a capacity reservation you can do now, uh, which they introduced about six months ago. So instead of doing the RI, um, you just reserve the capacity. Uh, that's how people are doing it mostly now. 
so these come in two flavors. Uh, there's the Compute Savings Plan, uh, which provides the most flexibility and helps reduce your cost up to 66%, uh, just like the convertible RIs today. Uh, the plan automatically applies to uh, any EC2 instance regardless of region, instance family, OS, or tenancy, including those that are part of EMR, uh, ECS, or EKS, and or launched by Fargate. Um, that is a pretty nice change, uh, not having to worry about instance types or compute type or OS. Uh, simplifies this dramatically for you, but you do get a little bit less discount uh, due to that. The other option is the EC2 instance savings plan, uh, which applies to a specific instance family within a region and provides the largest discount, uh, up to 72%, just like a standard RI. And this covers usage of different sizes of the same instance type, so your C5 4X large or your C5 large uh, in a given region. And you can even switch between Windows to Linux uh, with this model without having to make any changes to your savings plan. Uh, so that's a pretty nice uh, change there and much more flexible version of the traditional RI. Uh, you can buy these new savings plans via the Cost Explorer and click on Savings Plan, uh, which includes several menus including Overview, Inventory, Recommendations, Purchase Utilization Reports, and Coverage Reports. Uh, and savings plans are available worldwide today, except for in China. So you note here, if you have built a lot of machine learning and you have a really great system for buying the legacy RIs, uh, those are still supported. You can still buy the old-fashioned RIs if you have that down to a science or a more predictable workload, uh, unlike most companies. So really it's just a bulk discount plan. Yeah, so basically I'm committing to uh, you know, $100,000 a month, and so everything up to that $100,000 a month that's in the compute family uh, will basically be discounted, and then if I go to, you know, the 100000 to 200000 would be on on-demand pricing at that point. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, it's it's much more flexible versus, you know, I need 100 C5 larges and 100 M4, you know, 2X large in this region and the availability zone and, and all the things that are really a big detriment to making RIs uh, easy and efficient. Uh, that's all been kind of removed, which is super nice. So what happens if you don't spend the hundred thousand? They still bill you the hundred thousand. Yeah, it's just like a normal RI. Yeah. So it really isn't. So you. It's, it's just. A, so I mean, just it gives a, you recommendations in the wizard. So it does give you like, hey, here's what you're spending on an hourly compute basis. And so let's say it's a hundred dollars an hour. You're spending a compute across all of your services. Um, it may only recommend you spend eighty dollars, uh, you know, committed, and leave that twenty dollars to be uncommitted. Um, so it does try to not recommend that you commit to all of it, <laughs> just because it knows that it's a risk. Um, but yeah, you have options. Yeah, I guess you you could, you could choose whatever percentage you wanted for uh, for the savings plan, and then you spot for the rest. Yeah, you could definitely do that. And I think the other nice thing you can do is, you know, say you you are wasting money. You know, the ability to ch oh, I'm on an M4 uh, X large, I can move to an M5 2 X large. You know, use that additional savings. Uh, that I'm not using already, and I get a better instance class out of it. So there are some advantages. So if you do make those mistakes, you can now recover much easier than before, where I'm looking at a bunch of M3 instances I reserved three years ago that <laughs> I don't use anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we need to fix that. <laughs> and this nicely falls in line with what they released a few weeks ago and converted everyone over to, which is not CPU or instance type base limits, but the vCPU limits in your account. So they're kind of trying to move everything in parallel, which is nice. Then one thing move, and a year and a half later, somebody figure out that we should also move our eyes to the same model. It seems like there at least was a more cohesive thought process across the migrating to the vCPU limits in your account, and now the vCPU RIs and all these things. Yeah, I think the the key there is that they they're going to move into a world where they don't really have 
instance family sizing, right? A t-shirt sizing anymore. They have to solve this problem because if they want to get to the point where Google has, you know, the ability to add, you know, I want four CPUs or I want six CPUs and I want uh, 20 gigs of memory or I want 60 gigs of memory. You can do that all on the same server. You don't have to change from, uh, you know, X large to a four X large to get that. Um, you can get exactly what you need when you need it. And if that's their long-term goal is to move more towards that model, I think this is a good way to get there. Uh, which they wouldn't have been able to support in the old RI model, it would have actually been a big problem for them. So I think this is all preparation for things that either are going to come at reInvent this year or things that are working on for future uh, future years here in the next couple of years to be more competitive with Azure and Google on some of these uh, more dynamic instance types. Yeah, I definitely look forward to like an a la carte type thing where you just p pick what you want in terms of hardware from a, from a family and then just pay for what you use. Yeah, definitely. But uh I do look forward to explaining this to my future CFOs and say, you know, I want you to commit to a savings plan. And they're like, what, a 401k? <laughs> like, no, no, no. <laughs> I, don't, I don't necessarily like the naming of this particular thing, but uh, and, uh, it's all right. A savings plan that requires that you spend a certain amount of money a month uh, is, uh, I don't know, it doesn't sound like all that much of a savings plan. But Yeah, the really weird interesting part is that they were able to, I mean, it makes sense they could do it now, the, the Windows versus Linux, you know, it's not interchangeable in both of these offerings, because that was... It's always a big headache because, you know, these great performance numbers, they say 72% discount, for example, you couldn't actually get that on Windows boxes because of um, the way the licensing worked with Microsoft and all that. So you always got less savings on a Windows box versus Linux. Um, so it's nice to see that, you know, no matter what you're spending, you're going to save some money, which is great. I do wish they would just go to the next level, which is the Google uh, model, where if, you know, the server, the instance is up for more than X number of hours per month, you automatically get it discounted. Um, but apparently that's too, a road too far at this point. All right, moving on to another great feature for CloudWatch. Uh, so cross-account and cross-region dashboards are now available to you in CloudWatch. Uh, these dashboards enable customers to create high-level ops dashboards and utilize one-click drill-downs into more specific dashboards in different accounts without having to log in and out of different accounts or switch regions. Uh, being able to visualize, aggregate, and summarize performance and operational data across accounts and regions helps reduce friction and thus assists in reducing time to resolution. Uh, this is also integrated into AWS organizations, and so you can designate certain accounts as monitoring accounts and which accounts they can see data from, and this can all be handled at the organizational level to simplify your life. Uh, so this is, uh, there's a bunch of SRE teams out there, I'm sure, who are super duper happy about this new capability and feature to get that single pane of glass without having to buy something like SignalFX or... Um, what's the uh, Datadog guys, uh, or any of those other tools that do that aggregation for you, you can now do it directly in CloudWatch. Yeah, this is really good. I'm really, I'm really looking forward to this because you deploy an application in multiple regions for HA, you still want to have a whole view of the app, even though it's deployed in separate regions, so it's, it's about time. Yeah, I look forward to this eventually being extended out to being able to alert at this level as well. Um, not just view them, but you know, be able to actually alert and take actions all from centralized accounts. And I can see how that can get there in the next few months uh, to really help simplify some of this dashboarding uh, and single pane of glass type actions you want for SRE or even a NOC team at the end of the day. Yeah, I had one customer about eh, two years ago that decided to do one single account for production where you know it was a completely hands-off account. So it was a decent practice, but part of the reason was they wanted the alerting in one central place and they didn't want to have to log into 10 different application accounts to see their dashboards and everything. So th this would have solved the problem. So maybe we'll, they'll end up going through a re-architectural project in the next couple months. Excellent. I'd be curious to see if how they charge for this too, because in the, the problem you have with SignalFX or Datadog or, or Wavefront or any of the solutions is that they end up paying a pretty high API penalty for pulling the metrics out of CloudWatch. 
Uh, and I wonder if this will hit those same APIs and so we build the same way. That'd be the only detriment to this type of service. But I guess not paying for signal effects and paying for the API is better than, you know, just paying for the API would be a better scenario on that. So, yeah, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see. I'm curious to see a little bit more in action, how it looks like from the billing perspective, but super, super helpful feature in general. Did it say if they actually kind of aggregated the data in one region, kind of in the background, and then it's just a view, like... When you, when you log into the console, is it just a view of the data they've already aggregated, or are they literally pulling the data from the other region, like, as you pull up the dashboard? Uh, I did not see it, you know, dictate how the aggregation is done. It does say it does aggregate and summarize the data, mm. but I don't know if that happens in the account and then the aggregation is sent up, or if they actually send the raw data to the monitoring account. I don't know. I was just kind of wondering what would happen if there was a regional failure. Does it, com- does it completely break the dashboard, or does it just show you the data from the region that's still up? Well, I mean, I'm I'm assuming that this is based in US East One, so <laughs> like all these kind of all these kind of global services uh, sort of have that US East One uh, problem to them. But uh, I don't know. That's a good question too. Um, maybe we can get some follow up on that. If you have this, you know, if the monitoring account creates this roll up dashboard in West, and you have services in East, West, and Europe, what does that look like um, in the event of a East failure? I mean, I'm sure we could just set that up tomorrow, and it'll be down in the next week, Jonathan. So we'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll make a. I'll do a follow up item. Uh, Amazon is uh, trying really hard right now to convince everyone that they are a big open source advocate and they're doing the right things by open source. And so they've written a blog post um, called An Outsider's Inside View on Open Source AWS. Uh, And this is a blog post detailing all the contributions between AWS and FreeBSD, including Amazon hero Dr. Colin Percival, uh, who's a longstanding FreeBSD developer, perhaps best known for FreeBSD Update and PortSnap, as well as the founder of TarSnap, uh, which is billed as the online backups uh, for the truly paranoid. Uh, Colin has spent the last decade decade building and maintaining the FreeBSD AMIs for AWS, uh, and this details how his open source collaboration with AWS has gone from working with scattered AWS employees to coordinated corporate support. Um, across the board. So uh, it's an interesting article. I won't get too many of the details here. If you're interested, uh, do follow this in our show notes. Uh, but, you know, he talks about the different aspects of FreeBSD and his his passion for FreeBSD as a product and how that then turns into his contributions uh, with AWS and how AWS has helped contributing back to FreeBSD, which is great. Um, this is all a, a very much an image uh, management situation they're trying to do for um, all things open source. Uh, with also a very large push at AWS reInvent this year for open source, etc. Um, but it's a good article. Mm. We use FreeBSD quite a lot over the years, mostly for network appliance type um, implementations. But they, they don't really seem to be particularly relevant right now, so I, I kind of get the feeling AWS sort of trawled through the open source community just to find somebody they could uh, they could write a post about. Well, I mean, they're definitely not going to be open asking uh, Elasticsearch to do a post with them right now. <laughs> yeah, uh, burning those bridges on a, on a weekly basis, MongoDB. <laughs> uh, AWS has a new uh, feature to allow automated draining for spot instances nodes uh, on Kubernetes. Uh, this is a new node termination handler uh, to make it easy for customers to take advantage of the cost savings and performance boosts offered by EC2 spot instances and in their Kubernetes cluster with graceful handling EC2 spot instance. The node terminate handler provides a connection between termination requests from AWS infrastructure to Kubernetes nodes, allowing them to drain and terminate uh, in a healthy way versus just turning them off uh, as they do today. 
The termination handler uses the Kubernetes API to initiate the drain and coordinate actions on the node that is targeted for termination. Uh, you also use the handler to simulate spot termination requests. You can actually test this before the termination event happens and see that your app works and supports this properly. And the project is open source and supported by AWS. Uh, and you can run this on, or you can run this on any Kubernetes cluster running on either AWS. Uh, on your own minikube type deployment or including Uber, uh, EKS. So uh, very flexible. I assume this uses uh, some very specific APIs through the metadata service uh, that you can leverage uh, for this capability. I think it's great that they're adding um, spot instances and support and automatic connection, connection or you know application draining in this case, but for all the different services. But at that point, I feel like as more and more people use spot, I'm wondering if that's going to slowly raise the price and if that's their end goal is if we add spot to more and more things like the SageMaker they've done recently and a few of the other ones that they're trying to get that, the amazing savings that people are getting at spot, they're trying to raise that price so they get paid a little bit more and that differentiation between spot and on-demand, um, that margin becomes less. Yeah, that's, that's definitely going to happen as more people use it. Amazon QuickSight uh, has gone mobile, launching cross-source joins and more. Uh, Amazon QuickSight has announced the release of a QuickSight mobile for iOS and Android. The app enables you to securely get insights from your data from anywhere, browse favorites, and interact with your dashboards interactively. Uh, QuickSight also now supports joining across different data sources, which allows you to connect to multiple data sources and join data across these sources in the QuickSight console directly, as well as the new features for relative data filters to filter by any arbitrated number of periods. Uh, so this is a, a nice enhancement to QuickSight, and I really put it here in the show notes because uh, I want to talk about how much investment they're doing in QuickSight. Uh, so this is the sixth major update to QuickSight in the last three and a half months. Uh, so it's very clear that Amazon is really trying to make this a big-time competitor to services like Tableau, uh, which were recently acquired by Salesforce. Um, so I think this is uh, really interesting to see what they're doing here. I expect there to be some big announcements at this uh, reInvent as well. I guess it's, it's kind of an enabler for, for uh, remote uh, SRE or DevOps people as well. Now you can, they can have dashboards on your phone showing you the states of your services. So it's... Um that perhaps they're, they're also trying to push back into the sort of DevOps tooling market. Yeah, I mean, there's so many ways they can go with QuickSight, you know, combined with the CloudWatch dashboards we just talked about, um, and this service capability, I think you can see how this really, really helps open up a bunch of different avenues for them to start providing insights and reporting for executive consumption as well as for your mobile device. Um, you know, hey, how many people have used your website today? And you just pull it right up on your mobile app. Um, I think that's an overall nice, nice enhancement that is well needed. Yeah, and it's it's really I was really happy to see that it supported um, IDP or, or uh, yeah federated login out of the box, which is pretty cool. That's great. I did download the app on my phone, uh, so I will let you know uh, if I qu- I create something that I can actually leverage on it. I will let you know. Excellent. We should do a uh, CloudPod uh, stats dashboard. Uh, that's exactly what I was going to work uh. on. <laughs> so. Do you see a lot of uh, of need for this out in the market, Matt? I feel like I don't really see that many customers that go into this. I have a couple customers that use um, Tableau to for their dashboarding. Um, but one of the problems I know a couple of my customers have had, because um, I've dealt with a bunch of HIPAA and HITRUST compliant, is uh, Tableau would not for for a while ago. Maybe this might be outdated, but they would not let they would not sign a BAA which meant you couldn't run any PHI data through it. So a lot of companies had to have some sort of process to actually um, remove all the PII from it before they actually put it into their dashboarding system to actually give their business analysts and everything like that more information. 
personally, I feel like either way you should remove the PII before you give your business analysts a lot of that stuff because there's probably not a need for them to know that Matthew Cohn has X, Y, and Z, and this is his social and all the other information. But, you know, that was a problem for a couple of customers. And I know a couple of customers uh, struggled to make that decision to go with one tool over another. And if QuickSight, which I don't know offhand, comes under the BAA of Amazon, that in theory could help them open that whole healthcare market. Interesting. I hadn't thought about the healthcare aspect of it for the BA. Um, but yeah, that's that's definitely an interesting idea that they could do some interesting things to kind of go after Tableau. I think the biggest problem I see in this is that they don't have the hearts and minds of BI people, right? And so how do they get how do they get the message of QuickSight as an awesome tool out to those people who make those business decisions? Because that's not technically a technical decision about which tool you use for this a lot of times. It's really what does the BI team use, what do they prefer, and how do they want to deploy that to their executive team for their needs? And so I think it's it's a bit of a marketing problem right now is they don't have a good message on this, and they don't have a way to really tell people it exists other than you know through the cloud pod uh, and their press releases. Um, I think they need to really kind of drive a much bigger marketing story around this. And I just did check QuickSight is under the BAA. So in theory, you could just let whatever database you want to point QuickSight at, you could just let it point to there and you don't have to worry about compliance for uh, healthcare, at least. Oh, that's nice. That's great to know. Uh, PostgreSQL 12 is now available in Amazon RDS database preview environment. Uh, the Postgres 12 capability includes support for 51 extensions, including PostGIS 3.0, and adds support for the wall to JSON capability and the decoder raw plugin for logical decoding. Uh, Postgres 12 was released on October 3rd, which means AWS has only delivered this a month and a half after it was generally available, which is much better than they did with uh, Postgres 11. So hopefully this is a sign to come of uh, much better adoption of these features uh, in production capabilities for the new versions of Postgres. Um, this is, of course, only in the RDS preview environment, which is not production ready, so hopefully it becomes production capable at reInvent or very soon. Uh, and so for those of you who are not familiar with the preview environment, uh, preview environment instances are retained for a maximum period of 60 days and are automatically deleted after the retention period. Um, RDS snapshots are created in the preview environments only and cannot be applied to the non-preview mode databases. So if you are in a preview environment and you want to move that to production when it's not, you have to do a PG dump and PG load uh, process uh, to move that data. So do keep that in mind if you're using the preview environment. It is not for production use. Uh, it is purely a preview. You're looking for your feedback and defects. Uh, that you might identify. Mm, the clue is in the name, right? <laughs> it is, but it doesn't stop people from sometimes using things in production that they shouldn't. Yeah, it's just... Doesn't Amazon have a feature where you can like upgrade the snapshot or something um, to a newer version of the database? You, It's a little bit cleaner, so I wonder if they're going to allow you to do that with your, let's say, 12.1 gets released, if you can take your previous snapshot and upgrade it out of it, or if you have to do the dump, like they're just going to say the snapshot's no, not at all relevant. Well, if you if you're using the mainline RDS, you know, like Postgres 11, for example, and you want to move to Postgres 12, you can use that snapshot capability. That's totally fine. Okay. Um, it's that you can't take a preview snapshot and move a preview snapshot to production. That's what they're saying they can't do, even the snapshots. Got it. Okay. Yeah, so if you're you're worried about being abandoned on Postgres 11, that won't be the case. But uh, just don't just don't put your production system onto uh, the preview environment. You'll be fine. Yeah, I wonder if the uh, um, quick. Oh, what the hell, I'm thinking. Um, Redshift uses Postgres, doesn't it, um, under the under the covers? No, Redshift is its own thing. Is it? I thought they were going to migrate away from its own thing to uh, whatever. I mean, 
maybe I, I don't I'm not aware if that's actually happened or not but uh, fundamentally it was the redshift was technology that they had licensed from another company uh, to do columnar database and then that company went belly up um, and so I don't know if Amazon somehow bought the code as that company went belly up or, or what and so they own that or if they said uh, at that point they're gonna start moving to something else for columnar but um, I don't think they're using Postgres for the columnar capability yet okay but I could be completely wrong on that because I, I don't use Redshift um, that often. And so if someone can sell me otherwise, I'd love that feedback. I'm kind of curious because Postgres 12 is, is um, I mean, it's super good performance. And uh, that is some really cool features like re-indexing online without interrupting any uh, existing running queries. And the um, optimizations for the for the logging is going to be really good now because the... Uh, uh, you know, log replication to other regions is is kind of kind of crappy with with Postgres right now. But if they once they've optimized the the, the log content, um, we can improve our sort of RPO in case of failure. Very interesting. They do they did add column oriented storage in nine point four, so it's possible they have rolled that forward. I don't, I just don't know, John. I don't know. So, something to research. We'll get back to you, happy listeners. All right, well, that's it for uh, the AWS news. But uh, as we're heading into reInvent, I did promise last week that we would start providing some tips and tricks uh, for reInvent. So this time we're going to talk uh, about logistics and hotels and keynotes. Um, so, Matt, you've been to reInvent several times, I know. Uh, I've been, this will be my fifth year, I think. And Jonathan, I think this is your third, correct? Uh, fourth. Fourth, fourth time. So there you go. So we uh, we are not exactly experts, but we are expert enough to uh, provide some tips for you, who, for those of you who are going to the event this year for the first time, or even those uh, who have been many times. Maybe this will help you as well. Uh, so let's start with hotel selection. What do you guys feel about hotels, especially knowing that there is a very large campus between the MGM Grand all the way to the Venetian, that is the entire strip of Las Vegas, with many, many hotel venues in between, including the Aria, the uh, Mandalay Bay, or sorry, the, um, the Mirage, and the Treasure Island, all those hotels in, in the middle. What do you guys think about hotel picking? When reInvent was just in the one venue in the Sands, it, it made sense to stay in the Venetian, or at least or you know, Treasure Island, close, close to the, to the uh, conference center. But now there are sessions distributed all down the strip. I think it's less important where you stay. And, Personally, I I like staying off the strip and getting away from the uh, the noise and the busyness and find an Airbnb or something. Yeah, we normally stay. Um, I think at the Aria mainly because you know last year or at least the year before they were um, they were the place that was in theory more container focused, which is where a lot of the work that I end up doing falls into place. Um, so we ended up staying there, which helped for some of the sessions. But honestly, at this point. It's really just, it doesn't matter. You're going to end up walking between places or taking the shuttles, which, you know, it ends up being a wash at that point. Yeah, I think the um, the Sands was definitely the place to be. It is still somewhat the epicenter of all things reInvent, even though it's on one end of the strip. Um, so, I mean, you're never wrong for picking the Venetian or the Palazzo Hotel, which is the connected hotels to the Sands uh, convention center space. But I definitely think, um, you know, picking something more middle of the road, like the Aria, I think gets you kind of the best of both worlds where you're, you're central to the, to the main, the main activities and you can kind of get moved around pretty quickly. Um, but the, you know, I agree with Jonathan. I think the, you know, this being my fifth year, this will be my third year doing an Airbnb off the strip, uh, being able to detox, uh, from the, 
the mess of the strip <laughs> every night and be able to you know have your own food and your own kitchen and all that kind of stuff is, is super super refreshing and it definitely makes the drag of being there for a full week um, less impactful so that is that is my expert pro tip uh, if you are your company allows you to expense Airbnb hotels uh, it is a really great way to do it and if you have co-workers like Jonathan and I are staying uh, with Ryan uh, you know, you can actually save a quite a bit of money on your hotel stay. Uh, you know, basically the cost of one hotel room at the Venetian uh, is what it costs for the three of us to stay at a really nicely uh, set up Airbnb. So definitely a pro tip for those of you out there who are open to doing something like an Airbnb um, or have friends that don't mind sharing an Airbnb. You can save a lot of money uh, in that model. Yeah. Yeah. And um, as far as travel goes, I thought the, um, the, the bossing between venues was actually pretty good last year the the traffic though in vegas <laughs> uh, it's faster to walk if you can walk for sure yeah so they um they did fix the big problem of 20 2017 which was mm -hmm. that the bus service was awful in 2017 and they did fix that for 2018 so i expect that to be the same this year the bus service will be pretty good um if you don't mind walking walking is always great especially considering how much sitting you do at these type of events uh, the walking is great but uh, it is a bit you know they don't look very far on the hotel maps or even on the campus map but they are a bit of a walk so if you're at the sands uh, which is in the very back of the venetian palazzo and you're trying to get some to something at the uh, the bellagio for example uh that is that is probably almost a half mile walk uh, to a mile uh well no sorry it's right about a mile and a half actually i think about it because of the bellagio it's in the back of the hotel as well uh across many streets and things like that over sky bridges but it's Quite a bit of walking at the end of the day so just keep that in mind um if you don't want to do the buses uh the using lyft or uber is a great option uh, that's one of my go-to's as well as oracle typically has their um their uh, teslas driving rides. around yeah free tesla rides if you can tweet them uh, and tell them when you want to go someplace they will actually pick you up and drive you uh, and give you an oracle ad uh, on your way between two venues uh, but that's a nice option too that's free uh, if you can get onto their list but the, uh, the Lyft and Uber is nice, uh, but do be aware that the hotels, sometimes with the Uber and Lyft stands uh, in the parking garages um, or in the front of the hotel away from where the venues are, so do keep that in mind. Uh, do follow the signs uh, through the venues to the different Uber and Lyft pickup areas uh, of the different hotels. Uh, I would not recommend uh, bringing a, renting a car. Uh, parking is not free at most hotels in Vegas nowadays. Uh, and, you know, dealing with a car and the traffic and all that and the parking, uh, that is a very inconvenient option, and I really don't recommend uh, that one. Uh, what do you guys think about cars? That sounds like the world's worst choice in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and there, the other option uh, for some people, especially if you're staying at the MGM Grand, um, is the monorail system. Uh, the monorail will be able to take you between the MGM and Harrah's, uh, which is outside the Venetian. So you still have a bit of a hike uh, from where the Harrah's monorail station is into the Venetian. Uh, but anything that's on the basically the east side of the strip um, is pretty much accessible via the monorail system. Um, which is pretty simple to use uh, and a week-long pass is not very expensive at all so definitely check that out if you're open to the monorail and a walk or some hybrid of that um, that is not a bad option as well honestly normally when i'm there i probably walk four to six miles a day if not more because i just wake up and it's nice to get some fresh air get some sunlight you know while versus being inside the casinos all day with the stuffy air that is just recirculated so i kind of enjoy that walk in the morning at least from wherever I'm staying to wherever the first place I'm going. And by the end of the day, you know, sometimes even that walk home after the pub crawl or any of the other events, it's just, it's a nice refresher to do. 
other item here for this week is the keynotes. Uh, so all the keynotes this year are going to be at the Venetian uh, Monday Night Live with uh, Peter DeSantis, who's the VP of AWS Global Infrastructure and Customer Support. Um, I've actually never made it to Monday Night Live. Uh, I don't know about you guys. Uh, then Andy Jassy's this year is going to be on Tuesday, which has normally been reserved for the Global Partner Summit keynote, uh, but that's been moved to Wednesday this year if you're a partner. Uh, and then Dr. Werner Vogels, of course, will be closing out the event on Thursday, uh, all at the Venetian Hall A. Uh, Hall A is not big enough to support all attendees. It only can handle, um, I believe, around uh, 1,500 to 2,000, or no, first 1,000 guests. Uh, we'll get apparently special swag. Uh, but beyond that, it's, it's about maybe 5,000 people in that venue, uh, knowing that reInvent is probably around like 25,000 people. Uh, if you would like to be at the keynote, make sure you get there early uh, to get a seat. Uh, if you don't get there early, they will send you to an overflow room. Uh, where you can watch it on video. Uh, my preference these days is just to watch it from my Airbnb on the TV <laughs> and just enjoy it from the, the quietness of why I'm eating a nice breakfast on my own uh, and then head to the craziness of the event. Any other tips for keynotes? Yeah, one of my good pro tips is if you have to be somewhere right after and you have any AWS certifications um, or go get the cloud practitioner or any of those at this point, um, is go sit in the certification lounge in the last couple of years, they always gave everyone individual headsets. So you could just go find a place, sit, sit down. Um, granted, most of the time it was on the floor, but at least it was a more quiet place. And you could sit down, do whatever you need to do, and watch the keynote. So that was always a nice compromise for me was doing that and getting Therefore, I'm already in the location I need to be for right after for whatever session or workshop or anything else along those lines I was doing. So one of the other things I always do when I go to Vegas is I always stop at one of the two ends of the strip, I think there's a Walgreens and a CVS when I get there, just to get some water and some Gatorade and things along those lines. Granted, there's stuff all around, but when you wake up in the morning in the dry desert with the AC on, I'm always massively dehydrated. So just having those couple of things or some snack food or something like that that you can just throw in or grab something for breakfast and just have in your hotel room saves you so much time and headache and money because you can just grab it at the overpriced CVS or Walgreens that are on the strip. And in addition to that, um, like lip balm, Vaseline, something like that is, is uh, I've got, I've had chapped lips every year. I've been to Vegas for reInvent, so. <laughs> yeah, one of our good friends uh, always loses his voice at reInvent. And so, uh, you know, he's, by day two, he's drinking tea and honey all week long just to keep his voice uh, somewhat functional just from the dry air. Well, good. Thanks for those tips, Matt. We appreciate it. Uh, next week, like I said, we'll talk about some other things uh, to help you on your reInvent journey. Moving on to Google. Uh, Google has released its Scaffold tool for automating Kubernetes, uh, now generally available. Uh, Scaffold is an open source tool that makes it easier for developers to work with Kubernetes. Uh, the launch is a culmination of a 20-month beta test that software, that's, that software went through, uh, including 40 iterations and open source contributions submitted from over 5,000 pieces of code to the project. Um, Kubernetes has become a staple for enterprises, of course, and container environments uh, become the standard. The software automates many of the tasks involved in setting up and managing clusters, but making changes to a deployment um, is less straightforward, and engineers have to rejigger their configuration files and perform other time-consuming adjustments every time they wish to roll out an update. Uh, the Scaffold service makes it easy that, uh, eases this burden by analyzing the code on a developer's machine, figures out what adjustments will be made to the Kubernetes environment, and then deploys the update automatically uh, for you. Scaffold also simplifies the other dev needs like tail, logging, or tail logs for your deployed workloads and port forwards for remote applications for your machine so you can iterate directly against your service endpoints. Uh, so again, if you are using Kubernetes in development environments or on your laptop, uh, Scaffold can definitely make things uh, much, much easier for you. Yeah, and even the developers trying to keep up, even though they know their code or in theory know their code inside and out, making sure that 
everything is configured right going into the Kubernetes cluster just becomes a large nightmare. The amount of times I've seen people be like, well, it worked in dev and somebody hasn't updated their file for the dev account, dev YAML to the prod YAML um, or JSON, it, it just always becomes a little bit painful. So hopefully this will help smooth that process over and will help the adoption of Kubernetes. That is the, the most common dev thing I've ever heard. It worked in dev. <laughs> uh, yes, this is definitely a great a great option. Google is now also opening the door to uh, more development tools for Cloud Spanner. This is a new JDBC native uh, driver for uh, GCP. This allows you to connect directly to Cloud Spanner with all of your uh, Google tools. The one in the blog post example is DB uh, Beaver, a popular open source graphical database development tool. Uh, and the JDBC would support any database modeling tool that you might use. Uh, so if you're struggling with uh, using Cloud Spanner on Google uh, and you like to use your tools like Toad or other things that support JDBC, this might be a great option for you to check out. That's not really my thing. I was kind of excited when they announced Cloud Spanner, but then it sort of died out a little bit when it wasn't rolled out to to uh, as many regions as would have seemed sensible but you mean you you were upset that they announced a multi-region aware database and then only made it available in the east yeah, region pretty much <laughs> <laughs> i think they've got i think they fixed that problem now though you can actually deploy cloud spanner in multiple regions but uh, it, it definitely has a very big promise and i'm not sure that it has quite lived up to its promise yeah. yet all right, moving on to Azure. Uh, so coming a week too late to save my predictions uh, for Ignite, uh, Azure has released 10 user experience updates to helpfully improve the Azure portal. Uh, those include things like improved portal experience, uh, increased focus and clarity to bring services and instances that are relevant to you front and center, uh, new service cards, enhanced service browsing experience to help you find these, these things easier, uh, integration to Microsoft Learning Platform to allow you to get to free training uh, for any of the features in the Azure portal, uh, improved instance browsing experience, including the ability to filter uh, different types of service capabilities, uh, sorting, grouping, and allowing you to export these resources to a CSV file, uh, improved Azure resource graph experience, automatic refresh in the Azure dashboard, and improved service icons, as well as many, many other features, including a new landing page for the Azure mobile app, uh, adding that for your capabilities. So uh, if this has been announced on MainStage, I would have won the Ignite draft, but uh, it was not, and it is only a blog post after the event. So there you go. <laughs> Too small of an update to make a MainStage. I'll give you half a point. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate that. Azure portal is still garbage. So I really don't like to use the web portal for anything other than uh, just, I, I guess, dashboards, uh, things like that makes sense on, on the web, but Terraform all the way for deploying infrastructure. Yeah, but sometimes, you know, when things don't work, you got to look at it, at least be able to see. So to me, I use the console mainly as a read-only Yeah. to the point when I now have customers ask me to do stuff and I'm like, let me just go do the Terraform because I can actually write the Terraform faster than I can figure out how to do in the console because I use the console so little in life. I, I definitely, especially the Azure console, the Terraform is the way to go. <laughs> it makes your life much more simpler. Um, but there are some things you still have to use the, the console for occasionally. And so when you do need it, um, it's nice that it gets a little simpler to use. What's uh, what's new with the Azure Monitor is the other blog post that Azure posted this week. Uh, Azure Monitor had received several updates like Ignite uh, that we didn't cover in our recap show. Uh, so you can now monitor containers anywhere, uh, be it AKS, Azure Stack, and upcoming Azure Arc services. The Azure Monitor can also now scrape Prometheus data uh, to build this into a single pane of glass. The new Network Insights preview in Azure Monitor provides a single dashboard that gives you visibility into the entire network topology and latency between your endpoints. And you can work better and collaborate with workbooks uh, in your 
uh, Azure Monitor Service to visualize the data so you can all look at the workbook and see the different code you're running for that. As well as there's a new agent and additions uh, for profiling and tracing app, app capabilities into App Insights. Um, so overall, Azure Monitor seems to be getting a lot of really good features, uh, very APM-y in several of them, but uh, definitely good to see major improvements to the Azure monitoring stack uh, to compete with Stackdriver and CloudWatch. It feels like all the cloud providers are trying to really get into that space of starting to get more, trying to get more and then share that information out, um, whether it's with Kubernetes and, you know, there are every vendor's implementation of it or just in general, like, here's your cross-region or, you know, they're trying to improve it so that it becomes a real tool for people to leverage versus like, oh, it's a secondary thought process. So I feel like it's becoming more of a first world, uh, first world user in these environments. Moving on to the uh, lightning round. Jonathan, do you want to lead lightning round today since Peter is not I here? I can do that for sure. Matt, are you aware of the rules of the lightning round? Uh, think of something as snippy and funny as you can really fast, which I'm not great at, so we'll see how we go. So I'm assuming Justin's going to get the point, so just pre... <laughs> wow, let's just preordain that. That's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe, maybe we need like a, a golfing handicap for the lightning round. The Google App Engine has been updated with more new runtimes, Node.js 12, Go 1.13, PHP 7.3, and Python 3.8. It's nice that they're finally updating to support languages they should have supported a long time ago, including Go, <laughs> that they own and manage. Do you think they could be more coordinated? I just wonder why it's not an automatic thing. You know, when's the new release? Why don't they just build it in immediately? Surely there can't be that much work going into these especially minor point releases. Yeah, like what are they doing under the hood that has to be so special to go from 1.2 to 1.3 of Go? Probably nothing. But it's a press, hey, it's a press release that you got to put out there, so. At least it wasn't four press releases. One for Node.js, one for Go, one for PHP, one for Python. So, you know, you're getting somewhere. Amazon EC2 now supports Microsoft SQL Server 2019. I mean, it's just the fact that you can run SQL Server on an EC2 instance. It supported it without them announcing it was supported. This just means that you can now have it build automatically through your account versus bringing your own license. But, you know, great. It's a, it's a feature, I guess. Amazon RDS for Postgres supports customer-initiated snapshot upgrades. Hey, did we just talk about this? I think this? so, unless you're using the preview environment, which does not. Introducing the AWS Step Functions Data Science SDK for Amazon SageMaker. This, and this is actually really cool because stuff functions are awesome. And now coupling that with SageMaker to be able to instrument your entire end-to-end, -end, this is it's pretty sweet. Yep. Download the Hello World notebook from GitHub. AWS App Mesh now supports HTTP2 and gRPC services. Talk about a, bare, a very low bar of entry <laughs> to be able to support something in the App Mesh. Yeah, I was kind of surprised that some of these things were not included already. That is the history of the lightning round, my friend. Yep. Right. <laughs> we're, we're always shocked at some of the features. Like, that wasn't just part of it already? Yeah, that's kind of what, when I read this one. I was like, I thought that was already in there. Okay, cool. Amazon RDS for Oracle now supports Oracle Database 19C. It's, uh, that's why they're one of Oracle's biggest customers. <laughs> or partners, if you will. The not a customer anymore. No, they are still a customer. That's, okay. That is a myth. Because they, they say in their blog post that they have third-party applications that still require Oracle, and those have not been moved off Oracle. Uh, so they are still a customer, but they, but as Oracle tells you, they are one of their biggest partners because of the RDS. Work they do. I'm so glad they just called it Oracle 19C instead of the full version. 
number which was 19.0.0.0.iu-2019-07-IUR-2019-07.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0.0
Yeah, but anyway. is, is, doesn't it mostly? Doesn't, I think it's mostly mocks, or it, and or if it does store, it doesn't store a lot of data. It doesn't persist it to disk. Um, right. Yeah. But it's really it's really good for testing. Amazon Redshift now supports changing table sort keys dynamically. Basic database capabilities. Basic database capabilities. <laughs> yeah, having to recreate a table just to change the sort key is uh, a bit painful. Well, I'm going to have a hard time picking a winner this time. I'm not sure that anybody really uh, wowed me with anything. I vote the guest take it then. <laughs> we're, we're behind. <laughs> I think you guys even stopped counting how little the guest points get. So I could give it to the guest. So maybe I'll give it to Larry Ellison for naming the Oracle version number uh, like 32 or 40 characters long. <laughs> That's it for this week here on the Cloud Pod. Uh, Matt, if they want to follow you on Twitter or on the interwebs in some way, what is your recommended path uh, for them to reach out to you and say hello or learn more about Foghorn on the East Coast uh, as you are the practice lead for that side? Yeah, if you want to reach out to me, um, you can either shoot me an email or hit me up on LinkedIn. I don't really use Twitter that much. Um, otherwise, if you want to reach out, I'm Matt at Foghorn Consulting at my work. Um, and that's always nice and easy way to get a hold of me. Excellent. Thanks for coming. Anytime. Well, we, will, we look forward to seeing you, Matt, in person at reInvent, uh, as well as the rest of the Foghorn team and all of our listeners. We will see you next week on the Cloud Pod. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. 